We're in 1 Samuel chapter 20. And I've entitled this message, A Covenant Friend. A Covenant Friend. Let's pray. Father, we are, we're grateful for, uh, Lord, this, the tremendous grace that we've been given in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank You for the treasure of Your Word. God, Your Word that, that instructs us, teaches us, and, and Lord, sanctifies us. Uh, Lord, this chief instrument of Your grace is you, Your Holy Spirit takes and applies this truth to our heart and enables us, Lord, to apply it day by day. And, and somehow, Lord, by it, by Your grace, we, we grow. And so, Lord, we're, we're very, very thankful. We're, Thankful for uh, the story of Jonathan and David and, oh Lord, how this world is trying to pervert the story. But what a beautiful, wonderful example of a covenant friendship. And I pray, Father, that we would be instructed by this and um, be taught, uh, be encouraged, and be changed. All for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First Samuel, uh, again, chapter 20. We, we've read that. We've read the, read the story. Now, now... For those of you that may be really uh, following along in our, in our series through 1 Samuel, you guys may remember Saul, the first king of Israel, has been rejected by God. David has uh, now been chosen to be the new king. Samuel, you guys remember, anointed David as the new king of Israel. Now, now you can imagine Saul is jealous. He, uh, he obviously wants to keep the throne for himself, right? He wishes to kill David. But God has brought a faithful friend to David. And, and, and of all the, the people that God could have brought to David to be his friend, to be sort of his protector in this season in his life, how, how ironic is it that he would choose the son of Saul, Jonathan, to be his protector? To offer him this sort of uh, security, if you will, at least in time. Um, there he is. David enters into a covenant relationship with Jonathan. Deep and rich relationship that I think probably few of us ever enter into. Uh, I don't know about you, but I look at their friendship and, man, I can't say that I've had a lot of friends in my lifetime like this. And uh, I, don't know, I don't know if that's the case with you. My wife and I were talking about that even, even this morning. Uh, the few friends that we have that we would trust our life uh, to like, like David did. Now we've already seen that in chapter 18 and 19, how David and Jonathan entered into this relationship. Chapter 20 sort of reaffirms this covenant in, in an almost parenthetical way. In fact, I think if we were to take out chapter 20, you could still kind of see the flow of events and things that are happening there. But, but it's there for a reason. I, I think it, it is a pause for a, for a moment for us to examine, to look at this sort of covenant friendship between David and Jonathan. I think the author wants us to know how important this covenant is, certainly for David's protection. It's God's plan, if you will, to protect David's life in this moment in his life. Covenant seems, I think, to carry the most weight of this chapter. This is why I've entitled this message, Covenant Friendship. Now, well, let me, let me just kind of introduce this idea of covenant, because for some of you this may be a, a foreign idea. Uh, for those of you that are familiar with, say, covenant theology, uh, you'll be familiar with this, cer- certainly. And, and uh, even for those of you that uh, may be familiar with dispensational theology, you'll certainly be familiar with covenants. They're all through the Bible. Uh, some people uh, see covenants even when there aren't one, isn't one there. And some people don't even like to talk about them, and they'll use words like dispensations. And so, so anyway, the Bible is full of covenants. You understand that? Nowhere in the Bible are they defined, but they are 
everywhere. Now, let me try to just kind of give you a little bit of understanding of biblical covenants, and then we'll jump right in here to the text. A, a covenant is, is really a binding relationship. Uh, they're often accompanied by oaths, signs, sometimes sacrifices and ceremonies. Covenants uh, contain certainly divine uh, or, or uh, defined uh, obligations and, and commitments. And they're different from contracts. Uh, covenants are relational, right? They're between people. Right? A, a contract could be certainly between two businesses. If you violate the, the contract, what happens to the contract? Gone. But covenants, by their very nature, are, are lifelong. They are, they are, if we can say it this way, unbreakable. Now, you might violate the obligations of the covenant, but the covenant still remains. This is why Jesus could say about marriage, He said, if a man divorces his wife and marries another, what? He commits adultery. Why? Because he's still in covenant with the former wife. It wasn't uh, severed. It wasn't done away with. You remember what Paul said, as long as uh, a wife uh, has a husband, as long as he's living, what she's bound under law to the law of her husband. But what, what happens? When he dies, what? She's, she's free. Covenant has been fulfilled. So it differs from a sort of a, a contract. Marriage, I think, is probably a good way to describe a covenant relationship. In love, a husband and wife choose to enter into a formal relationship, binding themselves to one and one another in a lifelong faithful relationship, a devotion to one another. That's a covenant. This type of relationship, I, I think, is certainly very common in the Bible. There, there are what we would call social covenants. These are covenants between two individuals, usually two equals, like what we have here in chapter 20, that David and Jonathan. There are certainly political covenants between two kings or two nations. Uh, some, some people describe political covenants as sort of the stronger and weaker entering into a relationship where the stronger decides to provide for the weaker and the weaker submits and depends upon the stronger. Those might be described as political covenants as well. Think King Solomon and King Hiram in Kings chapter 5. Uh, uh, covenant was, was part of what it meant to live, and I, I think, in that ancient Near Eastern world. It, uh, and so it makes sense, doesn't it, that, that a merciful God would reach out to humans to reveal Himself and bring about reconciliation through a structure that people already understood. <laughs> covenant is one of, I think, the most important themes in the Bible because it sets, as you will, a sort of a sort of skeleton structure for God's entire redemptive story. This is how He deals with His people. Through what? Covenants. These binding relationships. From Genesis on, God enters into formal relationships one after another with various people in order to rescue His people. These divine human relationships push that narrative forward until it reaches its climax where? You guys know this. In who? In Jesus. That's right. So to tell the story of God's, God redeeming His people through Jesus, I mean, it's to tell the story of God's covenantal relationship with His people. It's an important concept. And I uh, wish we had a clear definition for it in the Bible, but we don't. But they are described. We who are believers, this is good news, we who are believers, listen, are in a new covenant, are we not? We are in a new binding covenantal relationship with Jesus Christ, or through, through, through Christ. We are in a covenant relationship with God Himself. Again, nowhere in Scripture is covenant defined. See the nature of many of them as they're played out in the pages of the Bible. 
So I want us to look at chapter 20 and, and see how this covenant between David and Jonathan is described. And, and I certainly hope that we can make some application to our covenant relationships. Certainly our relationships with one another and certainly our relationship primarily with God Himself through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now let me just pause and just kind of say, say something to you because we said this kind of last time that you know, our world takes these kind of passages and these kind of relationships and perverts it. You know, kind of, kind of distorts it, if you, if you will. And, and, I, and, I, and I think we, we, are, we are hindered by so much of our cultural influences in, in terms of thinking about covenantal relationships or covenantal friendships. I, I want to say to you, this is a beautiful passage. It, it is a beautiful uh, this passage is ordained of God. It is, it is, it is God-breathed. It, it, is, it is instructional for the church. And, and, and I, I pray that as we go through this, not just this chapter, we go through this life together, that the Lord Himself would bind us together more and more. That we, perhaps by God's grace, would, would look more like this kind of relationship, this kind of love, this kind of commitment, this kind of devotion to one another. Now, there are at least four ways in which this covenant is described in chapter 20. David's covenant with Jonathan could be described, first of all, as a loyal love. A loyal love. And that's really found in verses 1 to 9. Again, I said, we're not going to read through this, but let me, and I will pull out uh, certain verses. But, but as you're kind of gazing at verses 1 to 9, back there in chapter 19, Saul and his chorus of naked prophesying assassins <laughs> gave up. Some of you that weren't here last week will be asking, what in the world? You can go back and read the chapter and you'll understand. But uh, It gave David time there to escape. And he arrives at Gibeah. Now, do you guys know where Gibeah is? This, this is Jonathan's home. He goes to Jonathan's home. David, if, if, if he had any questions b- before, is now clear about Saul's intentions. What Saul wants to kill David. <laughs> if he was not, un- not, not clear, he is now. So verse 1, he says, in essence, this is the Bob paraphrase, he says, your dad's trying to kill me. Your dad wants to kill me. And David seems puzzled by the whole thing. He, he doesn't understand. He, he hadn't interpreted the lady's song, right? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. He didn't interpret that song in the same, quite the same way that Saul did, right? He wasn't quite sure. And so David wants Jonathan to help him understand. But, but Jonathan isn't convinced there's a real danger for David. Jonathan has his father's ear, at least he thinks he does. And, and, and as far as Jonathan knows, there's, there's no plan to kill David, but David knows, listen, you don't need a doctoral degree that Saul is on to Jonathan. <laughs> I mean, everybody already knows that Jonathan, what, is pro-David. You don't need a doctorate to figure that out. I mean, even Saul wouldn't reveal his plans to Jonathan. Saul may have lost the Spirit of God, but he's not lost his political sense, right? He understands. David knows, and he states under, uh, under oath, there is only a step between me and death, he says. And so Jonathan agrees to assist David, and David comes up with a plan to discover Saul's intentions. David plans on not being at the monthly or the new moon dinner with everyone else who is somebody in the kingdom. And of course, I think that seems to be pretty wise. I mean, if it, I mean I'm just thinking to myself, if you know somebody wants to kill you, what do you do? You try to avoid that person. <laughs> so it just makes pretty good sense to me. David now appeals to and explains to Jonathan why he came to him in trouble. And this is where I really want to focus on this particular point is in verse 8. Look there in verse 8. David says, Therefore deal kindly with your servant. Notice David calls himself Jonathan's servant. 
For you have brought your servant, there it is again, into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? Why would David turn to Jonathan when he's the king's son? Why would he do that? Yeah. Now you, let, me, let, me, let me give the, the pause. I want you to... Some, some of you are already answering the question because you know the answer. <laughs> this is the dramatic pause. <laughs> Why would he do that? Why would he do that? I mean, and the king wants to kill David, right? And here it is, because David and Jonathan, and we've already said it, had entered into a covenant. A covenant to which the Lord was a witness and a guardian of its promises. It was before the Lord, he says, that, that they had taken their oaths of protection. I mean, let, let me think about it this way. Where else was David to go? This was the person he was in covenant with. Chapter Back there in chapter 18, verse 3 and 4, they made a promise before God. They're, they're sort of reaffirming this promise here in this chapter. This is why David turned to Jonathan. Now we know that a covenant, listen, is only as good as the one who enters into it. We know a lot of people who, who violate the obligations of their covenant, particularly marriage. Uh, we know a little, about, a little about Jonathan, don't we? A little bit about his courage. We know about his fighting skill. He's already protected David and spoke on his behalf. We certainly know a little bit about David, of his courage, his skill with sling and stone. But for both of them, listen to this, for both of them, they had great concern for the honor of Jehovah. And a great and a godly love, what? For one another. This is what gives David the certainty, the security, a safe place in the middle of all the dangers. Because of this covenant, David expects Jonathan to deal kindly with him. That word, or those two words, deal kindly, is one Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word hesed. Some of you... Bible scholars will be familiar with that word. It's a common word in the Old Testament. David refers to himself as Jonathan's servant. In other words, he's submitting his life to the one person that he can expect to deal kindly with him, that he can expect hesed from. The covenant expectation was hesed. English translations vary about the word. The ESV here, the RSV, the NASV, all translate deal kindly. The New Jerusalem Bible uh, uh, translates show faithful love. 250 times this word is used in the Old Testament. seems pretty important. Uh, frequently translated mercy. I think the King James uh, Version translates, translates the word steadfast love most often. It carries the idea of love and compassion and affection, but, but also with the connotation of loyalty and faithfulness. So, so it's not just love, but it's a loyal love. It's not just kindness, but it's a, it's a dependable kindness. It's not just affection, but it's a, a committed affection. This is the idea. David is appealing to Jonathan to treat him with this sort of loyal love. And he has reason to expect that Jonathan will because he's promised in a covenant to Jehovah, a, co a covenant to God. Covenant gives David confidence to believe that Jonathan will treat him with this, with this loyal love, right? Remember back there again in chapter 18, we're told Jonathan went love David. It's reaffirmed here in chapter 20. The covenant was the expression of that love. The covenant was initiated by that love. Love gives itself in, de in devotion to its objects, doesn't it? It gives itself. Love, love gla gladly keeps its promises. David could rest because Jonathan had promised before the Lord to do so, to protect him. David could appeal to Jonathan for loyal love because it was 
Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, Jonathan loved David and he took an oath. And I think certainly this is instructive for us, church. I, it, it, it's, it's not just, I think, describing the relationship of Jonathan and David. It, it's a message, message that in times of trouble and despair and danger, listen to me, take yourself to the person that you've made a covenant with. And for those of us in Christ, who is it? It is Jesus Christ. In David's world, the only place he could go in the middle of the mess and the danger and the insanity, the only place for refuge was Jonathan. There was a covenant there. David could expect hesed, covenant, loyal love. There was a kindness in, in, in David's broken world in the presence of Jonathan. And, and by the way, I hope you're not surprised by that. For, for as you kind of look through the pages of Scripture, you see people committed in covenant, particularly in covenant with God, doing very similar things. Wasn't it Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, this cupbearer to the king of, of Persia, when he heard about the trouble of Israel, when he, when he was weighted with the burden of Israel coming back into the land, when he heard about the despair in the land of Israel, he said, he said, O Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, there's the word hesed, and those who love Him and keep His commandments. He recognized, there's the place I'm going to run to. There's the place I'm going to go. I've been covenant with Him. There's the place I can find protection and safety and security in the Lord. It would be David who would learn to trust the Lord this way, as he, just as he trusted Jonathan. He said in Psalm chapter 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. There, there it is. That's Hesed. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully. There it is again with me. <laughs> Listen, church. This loyal love doesn't flow ultimately from the making of a formal covenant. Do you understand that? It doesn't flow just simply because you've made some kind of formal covenant. But from the very nature of the covenant God Himself. A covenant is only as secure as the one who makes it. This is why David appeals to the covenant, what? Of the Lord. Of Yahweh. Of Jehovah. Exodus chapter 34, it says, The Lord is rich in hesed, that is mercy, loyal love, and faithfulness. Isn't that wonderful? And isn't it wonderful to know that we are in covenant with God and we'll, we'll never lack for loyal love. Amen? I mean, He has loved us with an everlasting love, the Bible says. I mean, if, if you need hesed today, if you need God's covenantal love, His mercy, you'll find it ultimately in one greater than Jonathan. You'll find it in the arms of Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're in trouble, learn from David. Go to the one you're in covenant with. Run to Jesus. I'm always alarmed at people when they get, when they get in trouble, when they get, uh, things are going rough. They go to everybody but Jesus. Particularly as we trouble ourselves with our own sin. I mean, we like to wallow in it. Just wallow there. We feel like maybe if we just suffer enough in our own sin, wallow in our own guilt long enough, we'll somehow pay for our sins. Folks, that's a Roman Catholic doctrine. That's penance of some kind. Listen, I'm telling you, whatever trouble you're in, whether you're self-inflicted trouble or trouble from outside or wherever it is, run to Jesus. I mean, where else are we going to go? I mean, who else are we in covenant with? 
So there it is. Loyal love. There's a second thing I want you to notice. A second way in which this covenant, I think, is described. Uh, the, the covenant between David and Jonathan is described not only with a loyal love, it's also described with a peculiar faithfulness. A peculiar faithfulness. This is really found in verses 12 to 17. Again, I won't read all of those verses, but I will pick from some there. These verses seem to interrupt the flow of the story. and Some have speculated that they were inserted later. Well, um, they're there. <laughs> but there, I think there's another alternative, and that is, is that they're there because they're important. It's there. It's important, right? Uh, we do that sometimes, don't we? When we're writing a paragraph or when we're writing something and you want to give explanation or you want to give clarity, you put something in parentheses to describe what you just said, right? We do that sometimes. So this is kind of this, this is here in this particular section. These, these verses, I think, carry some weight. Much more weight than simply finding out what happens next. We're like that. We always want to find out what happens next. We, we don't like pauses in the story. Wait, where, where's the story? This is, a, this is a necessary pause to give clarification about what's happening, how God is providing for David this wonderful covenant relationship between David and Jonathan. And so Jonathan sort of reaffirms his commitment to protect David in these verses. Let me just read verses 12 and 13. You can follow along with me. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. You see that? Who's witness to the covenant? God is. God is. When I, have sounded, uh, uh, when I have sounded out my father, in other words, when I've discovered his plans, about this time tomorrow or, or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan. And more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send, send you away, that you may go in safety, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father." It's an amazing statement from from Jonathan. Amazing. Especially that last little section, May the Lord be with you as He has been with my father. In other words, as king. Do you hear what Jonathan's doing? He's, if if we'll sort sort of setting his own, if he had any, his own ambitions aside to say, I'm submitting to God's choice. David is to be king. Now, this is the prince speaking. Do you understand? This is the one who's in line, at least humanly in line, for the throne of Israel. I mean, it's an amazing statement to publicly give over this part, his part in the kingdom. And this is why Jonathan's love, his covenant, his commitment is so peculiar in the world in which he lives. This covenant is, is strange to most people's ears. No one in this time would ever do what Jonathan is doing. I mean, you don't give your kingdom over to your rival and promise to protect him. You just don't do that. Jonathan was the prince and lying to the throne of Israel. I mean, if Jonathan was like everybody else, I mean, he would get on board with killing David. I mean, at least get rid of him somehow. Send him off, banish him somewhere. I mean, I think this is why, this is why Saul's so angry in verses 30 and 31. We'll read that in a few minutes. But, yeah, this is what so angers Saul. He, he thinks, Jonathan, Jonathan, you don't get it. You don't understand. Jonathan's covenant faithfulness, I think, flies in the, in the face of sort of political sense. Jonathan really did, I think, seek first another king. It didn't make sense in the world he lived in. I mean, even more peculiar is what Jonathan asked about the future. Soon, you guys know this, soon Jonathan will be the fugitive 
and David will be on the throne. David will be the preserver, the, the security, the protection. Here's what Jonathan says to David. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. There's that hesed again. That I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from, the ho- from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Wow. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Who was David's enemies? Saul. Yeah. And David promises to do so. And when, when David came... Or in Israel, that's exactly what he did. And you can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 9, I think it is. According to the wisdom of the age, such, such promises would have been foolish. I mean, who would do such a thing? Everyone knows that when you have new leadership, you don't keep the old leadership around. We know purge is the word, right? Get rid of those folks. It's the way the ancient Near East works. Uh, but you don't, have to, you don't have to wander over there to the ancient Near East. You can look right there in Israel <laughs> to see that, how they acted uh, to one another, right? Just look at the history of their kings. Watch Am- Amri in, in, in 1 Kings chapter 16. Jehu, you remember him? 2 Kings chapter 10. What did he do? He slaughtered all the descendants of Ahab. Hmm. Hmm. If you're a new king, I mean, it's just good politics to get rid of of any of your rivals or any of the former leadership or anything like that in their family. Uh, one commentator said, solidification by liquidation. I like that. And listen, everybody believed it, everybody knew it, and everybody practiced it in those days, except for Jonathan and David. <laughs> David would preserve Jonathan's son Mephibosheth. You guys remember that? Why? Why would he do such a thing? Because he promised. Covenant, Covenant would conquer culture. Covenant faithfulness was thicker than political wisdom. Covenant equals peculiar faithfulness. Listen, we're not, li- we're not living on the edge of a, of a dynasty change. Um, and you can tell the people in Washington that. M- most of us will not be faced with a, with, a, with a David and Jonathan sort of dilemma, right? We do have examples, I think, of peculiar faithfulness. Certainly in, in the Scripture we have those kinds of examples. Um, and I do, think, I do think we need to take note of that. I think take careful notes of that. When we see those kind, of, those kind of moments of peculiar faithfulness in the Scripture, but also make mental notes when we see that kind of faithfulness in our context, in our world. I had a good friend of mine, a good friend of our, our, our family. His name was Alton Phillips. Alton Phillips was a, was a faithful man of God. He loved the Lord. He lived to be 102 years old. Think about that. When you live to be 102 years old, your, your peer group becomes smaller and smaller. Yeah. Right? They, I mean, there, there are certain challenges that come with being that old. But the Lord had given him tremendous favor. I mean, until I think he was 98 years old, he was still driving. Better or worse, he was still driving. But, we, you know, when you live that long, most of the people that you went to church with and that you knew what are now dead, they're, they're gone. And it was a case with his wife. His, his wife uh, got sick. Buna was her name. And uh, got sick. I think he was probably in his earlier 90s at the, at the time uh, when, when she got sick. And, and really it started with her mind. Uh, she, she wasn't really in her right mind. And then her body started to fade. And he, he was just not able to care for her. And he had to place her into a, um, a nursing facility. And, uh, and I would go to, I would go to, to visit her. Um, and um, every time I would go to visit her, he would be there. 
You see, he would, he, would, he would drive, it was 20 minutes, I think, from his house to the, to the nursing home, and he would drive there 20 minutes one way every day, every day, every day. Did I say every day? Every day, seven days a week, and he would spend the day with her. And many times I would come in, and he would actually be crawled up in the bed with her, and he would stay with her till that evening. And you know, I, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, man, nobody, I mean, she, she was basically unresponsive, she, did, she couldn't communicate or speak, and she's basically just existing, we would say. And you know, most folks would look at that and say, you know, no one would blame him if he just goes home. If he just moves on with his life. And I remember talking to him, and he said something about, for better or worse, in sickness and in health, something about a covenant. And uh, when we see that kind of thing, we need to take note of it. <laughs> this was a peculiar faithfulness in the world in which we live. That's covenant. There's a third way, I think, in, in which the Bible describes this relationship between David and Jonathan. Not just a, a peculiar faithfulness, not just a loyal love, but a high-priced commitment. A high-priced commitment. This is found in verses 24 to 34. Again, reading all the verses, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll certainly speak to a couple of those. This is the table scene, right? This is, this is the, the monthly occasion, the new moon, where where they gathered for a feast. Saul is there in the seat by the wall. Abner is there. Jonathan is there. But David's place, what? It's empty. <laughs> but, but for now, Saul is silent. He thinks perhaps David is just ceremonially, ceremonially clean. He'll, he'll show up tomorrow. This is probably his, his thinking. Saul expects him to be there. I mean, even at the events of chapter 19. Uh, maybe Saul thinks that David was influenced by Saul's uh, um, events back in chapter 19. You know, you remember the, the, the prophesying. Maybe he thinks he's a changed man. Uh, or maybe he thinks David will think he's a changed man somehow. But, but David's not there the second day. And so he asks the, the, the question, right? This is really, this is really when, when, when uh, Saul's heart is revealed. This is when the emotional fireworks begin. Where is the son of Jesse, he asks. Jonathan passed on the excuse that David gave him, and, and, and boy, that's really all Saul needed, wasn't it? And by the way, let me just say this to you before I read this. This is what not to say to your children. Verse 30 and 31. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. I don't know that says about his mother either, but, uh, but anyway, there it is. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me. He shall surely die. Man, there's so much irony in that statement. We don't have time to deal with all of it. Ironically, Jonathan was the son of a perverse and rebellious parent, but it wasn't his mother. The rulers, listen, the rulers of this age understand neither the wisdom and the power of God, and Saul is no exception. Jonathan, if you will, uh, let me say it this way, he emptied himself. There's a Christ model for us. Saul was outraged. Jonathan put the Lord's servant and the Lord's word and the Lord's kingdom, what? First. Even above his father. It was not a cliche uh, for, for Jonathan to know Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek ye first, what? The kingdom of God and His righteousness. But Saul thought Jonathan was stupid. Right. Kill him. 
this is, this is what, he, what, he, what he thought Jonathan should do. Because if you don't, the kingdom, your kingdom, he says, your kingdom will be lost to him, that is, to David. In the eyes of Saul, Jonathan was dense. He was, he was not thinking this thing through, but, but Jonathan had his eyes wide open. He had his eyes wide open. Saul said, you and your kingdom will never be established. And, and Jonathan was c- completely unmoved by it. Jonathan knew that the kingdom was not his and never was his. It had never been his. He knew his father had been rejected and that David was the rightful king. He was bound by covenant to David. His commitment, listen to me, was a costly one. It was a high-priced commitment. It would cost him the goodwill of his father. It would cost him a kingdom. Certainly, eventually, what cost him his life. Jonathan would have understood the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jonathan, I think, is teaching us something, church. He's teaching us something. True life does not consist in preserving you and your own kingdom, your own little world, your own areas of influence. Right? but being willing, I think, to count the cost of preserving and protecting the Lord's kingdom. I hope hope you see something very freeing in that. Very freeing in that. There's there's slavery in really living for yourself and your own wants, your own desires, your own goals, but there's something very freeing in living for another kingdom and living for another king, that is, for us, King Jesus. Jonathan had acknowledged that the kingdom ultimately belongs to the Lord, and the Lord had chosen David. Jonathan's life wasn't centered on his own ambitions, uh, you know, that ambition that says, what's in it for me? But he was centered on, he was centered on God, and I, and I, and I think his providence, which, which says, look at what the Lord's given us. Look at what the Lord's done. Right? Sort of God-focused instead of inward-focused. As believers, I hope you realize we're not trying to make our own way through this world. We're not trying to make our own mark in life. We're not trying to get ahead in life, find our place in life. It's not consistent in achieving your goals, financial or otherwise. I hope you understand that. But in fulfilling, listen, but in fulfilling your promises, there's where it is. And it may cost you your wealth. And it may cost you your fame. And it may cost you your position. But it is wonderfully freeing to live for the goals and the fame and the exaltation of our King, King Jesus. Lastly, I want you to see in this relationship, this covenant relationship between Jonathan and David, it certainly could be marked this way as a biblical piece. Biblical peace. And this is found in verses 35 to the end of the chapter. The little fellow with Jonathan may have helped him more than he knew. <laughs> if Saul had people watching Jonathan, they may have relaxed when they saw Jonathan was not alone in the field to go shooting, right? Mm. Whatever the case, when Jonathan hollered, Isn't the arrow beyond you? David had an answer about safety. It's not safe. It's not safe for you to come around, Saul. This probably seemed to everyone like a normal day at the range. I mean, the lad, I mean, he had no clue, did he? He's just doing probably what he had done many times before with, with Jonathan just going and retrieving the arrows. 
There's a parting scene there in verse 41. David is grateful, full of grief, and there's mutual affection between the two. But Jonathan has the last word, and this is kind of where I want to focus here for just a few moments. Verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. I mean, under the circumstances, somebody might be tempted to laugh at Jonathan's statement, go in peace. Do you understand? Yeah, go in peace. Uh, But we know he's serious about it, isn't he? He's not not being silly. He's not uh, denying the reality of all the trouble that's around him. Go in peace while my father seeks to kill you. That's the context. But Jonathan doesn't mean that everything in David's life will be peaceful. Or that David won't still have to run for his life from time to time, right? Jonathan is saying that David can go in peace because there's peace between the two of them. There's peace because we have sworn an oath to each other. Their covenant bond had established what? Peace between them. David could go in peace in this way, that in this one relationship, in this one place, safety, there's security, and there's protection. Jonathan is communicating to David that there's some place and some relationship where there is an immovable peace. Listen, when everything else is changing, when every, everywhere else uh, is, is in danger and everybody seems to be at war, here is the one place where peace is established and will remain. And isn't that, isn't that a really good or really accurate description of biblical peace? Isn't it? Biblical peace can, can be had even when everything and everyone around us seems to be at war. Biblical peace is often found when we're surrounded by trouble. I mean, if you want some biblical evidence, just go to Romans chapter 5. Where Paul said to, said to Christians that they could enjoy peace with God and at the same time endure afflictions. Listen to this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We could stop there and just rejoice, couldn't we? Through Him we have have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We can rejoice more. And not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, he says. Knowing that suffering produces patience. It's quite possible for the Christian to enjoy peace even in the midst of our sufferings and our afflictions. Jesus told His disciples in John chapter 16, verse 33, I, I, I have said these things to you, in me you may have peace. You could pause there and just stop, but He goes on. He says, in the world you will have tribulation. You hear it? But take heart, I have overcome the world. Listen, you and I don't have peace because things are peaceful. I hope you understand that. You and I have peace because one greater than Jonathan has pre- pledged his friendship with us. Do you understand? One greater than Jonathan has pledged his friendship to us. If you have trouble with that, listen, you just need to go back and listen at the Lord's table. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Listen to it. He has committed himself to us in his own blood, church. He gave a blood oath, his own blood, so that we are at peace with God. Isn't that wonderful? It it, it is his covenant bond. It is our unforsaking friend who speaks peace in our dangers, toils, and snares, in our trouble, 
in our disasters, you and I can know peace through a faithful friend. That is Jesus. In the last line of this chapter, they both go their way. David one way and Jonathan into town. I mean, who knows what's going to happen to either at this point. But one thing is most certain. Covenant had protected and secured one relationship. I hope, listen, as we're, as we're just kind of concluding this, I hope you've experienced that through a, a friend more faithful than Jonathan, more loving than Jonathan, more committed than Jonathan. There, there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. Say it with me. No, not one. No, not one. We who believe have entered into an everlasting covenant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. We know His peace. Amen? We know His loyal love, His faithfulness, His commitment by a free gift through believing in Him. What a wonderful, wonderful friend we have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this this, uh, Word, this reminder, God, of this relationship, this covenant relationship between Jonathan and David. God, help us to understand... Lord, this idea, this truth of covenant. And be reminded, God, even even in stories like this, of of how you, yourself, have entered into a, a binding relationship with your people. Remind us, God, that we are the recipients of, of a loyal love, of a peculiar commitment, uh, of, a, of a costly one. Lord, that you are faithful. Uh, Lord, of a, of a biblical peace that we enjoy, God, through, through Jesus Christ. Lord, as this world rages around us, God, and as it war around us, Lord, help us to remember that our safety is ultimately in You through Your Son, Jesus Christ. Our security is rooted and grounded in You. There's no other place that we can turn. There's no other place that we can go except to run to You and find in You, Lord, everything that we need. Thank You for being so good to us. Thank You for giving us life abundant and life eternal through our Savior, our friend, Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.